This evening we are going to read uh, from Mark chapter 2, and uh, this will be also our passage tonight uh, for the sermon, and we are continuing to work our way through the book of Mark, and uh, we're going to spend the tonight looking at Mark chapter 2, verses 23, verses into chapter 3, verse 6, so you can either listen or follow along in your worship folder. Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest? And ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man, With the withered hand. Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. So as I said, we're continuing our series in the book of Mark. And the book of Mark is essentially the story of a suffering king. And it answers again and again two basic questions about this suffering king. Why does this king suffer and to what end? Again and again, Mark answers those two questions from various angles. And tonight, the passage we come to... He comes at those couple questions through this central theme of the Sabbath. And the roots of the Sabbath reach all the way back to creation, the very earliest chapters of the Bible. And the seventh day, when God rested, after He had finished everything that He had made, and then it gets reflected again in the fourth and the longest commandment that God gives through Moses, after he's delivered them from Egypt, while Moses is on Mount Sinai. And no um, fear of contradiction, the Sabbath was undoubtedly one of the most significant and important aspects of Jewish life and identity. And that's even true today. But particularly so in the first century. Now the Sabbath... Was a, all that means is rest, to take a break, to stop. And this weekly day of rest, it was a reminder of who the Jewish people were, where they had come from, and who they belonged to. So it was an identity marker. And the degree to which you owned that day of rest, that Sabbath, to greater or lesser degree indicated that you knew who you were, and that you were committed to the God who had given it to you. 
And this commandment, it was, it was really quite simple. You're to stop working. You're to take one day a week off. It was a gift. It was gave you a reason to stop, to take a break, and instead to rest and to worship. And that sounds rather simple until the question emerges, well, what qualifies as work? And by the time of Jesus over many centuries, the Pharisees and other religious leaders, they had identified no less than 39 different kinds of behaviors you were to avoid in order to ensure that you might keep the Sabbath. And as you might imagine, the result of those 39 different kinds of behaviors that you were to avoid turned this day of blessing into a day of burden. And then for the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees over the Sabbath that we see in this story highlights actually two common errors about what it means to obey God. The first one that we see here is that there is an assumption in this story that it's actually possible to obey God's law perfectly, just as long as we come up with the right mix of do's and don'ts. That's the first error that Jesus is going to unravel. And the second error builds on this one, that the way to do that is to come up with or to add to what God has already said. That the way to obey God is to add to what He has said in order to help you keep from breaking God's law. And therefore, the result was a growing body of rules and regulations, almost like a hedge or a boundary around God's law. And Jesus has come to challenge everything anyone had come to believe about the Sabbath. What it is, how to practice it. And therefore, what I want you to see from this passage is this basic point. The only way, only through Jesus, can you enjoy the blessings of God's Sabbath rest. That's what Jesus has for you. Only through Him can you enjoy this gift of God's day of rest. And so I want us to see three things together from this passage. I want us to see the practice of the Sabbath, the gift of the Sabbath, and then the cost of the Sabbath. So let's begin with first the practice of the Sabbath. And I think I want to acknowledge at the outset that it can't be over-exaggerated or how different our culture is today from the one that we're reading about in this story. And it's very. It's, and to compare them, I think what's really you need to see is that in the first century, there was intense religious pressure to keep the Sabbath. But today, it's almost the exact opposite. There is really there's intense pressure not to keep the Sabbath. And let me just give you two examples. Uh, one of them is the rise of youth sports. I'm a, I'm a parent, and I can't tell you how much pressure I feel to, to do youth sports with my boys on Sunday. Organized sports. Every sport we look into falls on a Sunday, somehow or another. I feel intense pressure to get involved in that and take time and energy to do it. 
I'm not saying you should or you shouldn't. I'm just saying there's intense pressure. Or take just the fact that we now live in a a global, technologically connected world. It's possible for you to do work anywhere at any time of the day. There is intense pressure not to make use of this gift. In the first century, you could say that a religious approach to the Sabbath, the first century was really a religious approach to the Sabbath. But in our day, we see what we might call an irreligious approach to the Sabbath. And for for many of us, those are the only two options. But Jesus, as we'll see, I hope, in this passage, He doesn't fit either of these ways of thinking about or approaching or practicing what the Bible calls the gift of rest. But as different as our culture is, the difference between Jesus and the Pharisees, I I want you to see, is even greater. Let's look at this passage together. The, The action of this story revolves around two main incidents. If you look in verse 23 and 24, Jesus and his disciples are walking through a field on the Sabbath, and his disciples begin to pluck grain from the heads of the grain in this field. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Jesus, again, he's in a synagogue, and there's a man there with a a hand that's withered. And the Pharisees are watching, waiting to see if he'll actually heal him. Now, as we'll see as we work through this, there is conflict brewing here. It is tense. And it's been building since, really, the chapter 1. The very first time Jesus shows up in a synagogue and begins to teach. And he's described as one who has authority, teaching in a way totally different than the religious leaders of the day. And then he cleanses a leper, and then he forgives sin, and then he eats with tax collectors and sinners. And the religious leaders are beginning to mount a case against Jesus. And now Jesus begins to mess with perhaps one of the most precious parts of Jewish life, the Sabbath. So when his disciples, they're walking through and they begin to pluck grain, what is it that happens here? Well, the the Pharisees see this and they consider it to be unlawful. Now, how do they get that? Well, in Exodus chapter 34, God commanded his people to rest even during harvest time, which is to say right in the middle of when you are most able to make the most money. (laughs) You still need to take a break. Lots of pressure to not rest. But then, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, God tells His people, but it's okay for you to pluck grain from your neighbor's field as you walk through. Just don't harvest it. Don't reap it. Well, The Pharisees saw this happening, and they saw this activity that really was lawful for them to do, even on the Sabbath, as too close to work. And in fact, the tradition at the time had actually outlawed it and said you couldn't do it on the Sabbath. And so therefore, Jesus is indicted through his disciples. So the Pharisees see in his disciples' activity a failure of Jesus to obey 
this fourth commandment, to even remember the Sabbath day. Because had they remembered it, maybe they would have made different plans to provide for food that day. The Pharisees are saying, Jesus, you are not living like a real Jew. How could you possibly claim to be the Messiah? Or take the, the incident of healing the man's hand. The basic idea in this case was, if it can wait until after the Sabbath, it should wait. That's the basic principle. One Bible commentator puts it like this, the first aid was deemed permissible to prevent an injury from worsening or getting worse, but efforts toward a cure were regarded as work and must wait the passing of the Sabbath. So the man's withered hand here, according to the religious leaders of the day, his hand was not a life-threatening problem and therefore did not rise to an exception to Sabbath rules. And so Jesus, seeing this, is outraged by this conclusion because it undermines everything He has come to do, especially God's day of blessing, His day of rest, of restoration, of renewal. It's the exact opposite of what He had come to do. And Jesus here is indicted as failing to be faithful because he wanted to heal this man's hand. Could it have waited until the next day? Probably. But Jesus didn't come to wait to do that. He came to bring the kingdom. He came to demonstrate he has the authority and the power to make everything right again. And Jesus has none of this. The Pharisees turned God's day of blessing into a burden, and Jesus has come to restore it to its original purposes. And therefore, what I want you to see here, this mounting conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders is a theme I want you to to begin to look for again and again in the Bible, especially in the Gospels. And it's the conflict or the difference between religion and the Gospel. You see, Jesus and the Pharisees show us two totally different ways Two totally different ways to live. Two totally different ways to approach God. However, what what I think most people hear when I say something like that is is this. That there are essentially, there are basically two ways to live. You either live God's way and, and do what He says, or you live your way and you do what you say. But what I want to try to show you is that that just simply isn't, it doesn't explain what's happening in the story. And here's why. The Pharisees, they are more serious than anyone else about living God's way. They repent of their sins. They go to church. They go to the synagogue every week. They keep the Sabbath. They pray. They read the Bible. They give money away. These are religious people. They are living God's way. But notice, where does their religion take them? By the end of this story, their religion takes them to plot a plan to crucify Jesus. You see, religion in the Bible, it only ever ends in one place. It ends with a hatred for Jesus. And I want to try to show you as we keep moving why that is. 
see, here's what I want you to see, that the gospel and religion are two totally different approaches to God. Let me try to explain it like this. Religion says, I obey God, and therefore I am accepted. Or perhaps if you're here and, and, and you wouldn't consider yourself a religious person, you, I obey some moral code, some standard of excellence, some standard of performance. Based upon that performance, I am then acceptable. I find openings and opportunities to where I want to be and with the people I want to be with. However, the gospel says this, that I'm a sinner saved by grace, therefore I'm accepted. You see, you can live God's way, you can obey the Ten Commandments and, you, and still entirely miss Jesus. That's what we see happening in this story. And Jesus wants to save you from that. And even more than that, if you, if you ever have gotten the, the idea that Christianity is basically living God's way, my guess is what that sounds and maybe feels like to you is you just need to be moral. But what I want you to see and what Jesus is showing us here is that being moral isn't what saves you. Living God's way can actually blind you to what you most need. And that is the good news that Jesus brings. So how do you know if you have adopted this religious approach to God or a gospel approach to God? And I want to say at the beginning that if, if if you have... Let's say you, you just say, I'm, I, don't buy, I don't buy Christianity, I'm not a Christian. The way the Bible describes uh, your perspective or the way that you would approach God is fundamentally religious. Because to, to not accept Jesus is essentially to say, I'm going to live my life my own way and, and according to what I say. Now, if you are a person who has come to faith in Christ, this... This conflict between a religious approach to God and a gospel approach to God is something that you, you battle all the time to varying degrees, to greater or lesser degrees. And it all depends on what you base your acceptance. It all depends on what you look to to justify your existence. Do you look to your own performance record or do you look to the performance record of Jesus Christ? See, a religious approach to God obeys God to earn his favor and to get things from God. A gospel approach to God obeys God not to earn his favor, but because you already have his favor through faith in Jesus. And therefore, these two approaches to God, they produce two radically different ways of living. And I want to show you by way of compare and contrast between what we learn about the Pharisees and how they approach life, and then what we learn and see from Jesus and how he approaches his life and ministry. Look at the religious leaders and the Pharisees for a moment. See, a religious approach to God, verse, chapter 2, verse 24, the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? See, a religious approach to God cultivates a moral superiority over other people. But then if you notice that moral superiority, it begins to grow and deepen and develop. So when we come to chapter 3, verse 5, Mark says, He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness 
of heart. A religious approach to God is not only morally superior, but develops a hard heart that there, then the end grows into utter disdain for Jesus, lack of compassion, failure to see the blessings that God has given because a religious approach to God turns those blessings into selfish pursuits. How can I get God to give me what I want? In contrast, a gospel approach to God leads to, look in verse 25, Jesus, in response to the Pharisees, appeals to a story of David as a precedent. What we notice in the story that Jesus mentions here is that David and those who were with him were in need, and they were hungry. In other words, Jesus demonstrates compassion. That compassion, meeting the needs of others, is precisely what the Lord's Day, the Sabbath, is for. But then notice in verse 4, chapter 3, Jesus asks this question, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? See, a gospel approach to God develops and grows in compassion of doing good to others and a desire to preserve life, to see people flourish. It's mercy and just. But then, also, we notice Jesus here, what is he doing? He's challenging the religious status quo. You see, a gospel approach to God is the only way, which is to say by grace, that you're a sinner saved by grace, therefore you obey God. That approach to God is the only way that you can begin to see the difference between the religion and the gospel. The ways in which we tend to justify our existence in order to prove that we're somebody, that we are acceptable. And only when we see this difference will we be able to enjoy the Sabbath as a blessing and not a burden. And why is that? Because, you see, instead of obeying God's law to to prove that you are acceptable to God, the Christian obeys out of love for God. And one writer put it like this, that for the Christian, the law of God shows you the life of love you want and were meant to live before the God who has done so much for you. God's law takes you out of yourself. It shows you how to serve God and others instead of being absorbed with yourself. You study and obey the law of God in order to discover the kind of life you should live in order to please and resemble the one who created and redeemed you, delivering you from the consequences of sin. However, I realize that what Jesus is doing here and highlighting and showing this contrast between religion and the gospel and this gospel approach to God, it's not easy to do. It's not easy to root out a religious approach to God and to replace it with what Jesus offers here. And therefore, we need to see the gift of the Sabbath that Jesus brings, and then when we get to it, the cost of the Sabbath. So let's look at the gift First of all, in order to see this gift, you need to see that Jesus has a totally unique relationship to the Sabbath here. 
And he shows us this unique relationship in three, three ways, using three different terms, all of which make the same point. So I'll, I'll try to work through this fairly, fairly briefly. He makes a reference here to David in verses 25 to 26 as a precedent for what he and his disciples are doing. And then in verse 28, he, he again uses this term to refer to himself the Son of Man. And right after it, Lord. Now all three of these terms are terms that the Bible refers to to describe the divine figure. The, the, to describe a person of authority. The anointed one of God who has God's authority and power. And that's why Jesus, when he refers to David, he's actually referring to David as a subtle clue that I am the true David. I stand in direct line with the king, the one true ultimate king of Israel. I am the better David. I have his authority. I am the true anointed king. And I am the son of man. I'm not just a human king. I am the divine king. With God's favor upon me. And I am the Lord. Therefore, I have the authority over the Sabbath. I stand outside of the Sabbath. And that gives me the prerogative and the right and the authority to tell you what it's really for. And to rescue it from all of our religious efforts to use a good thing God has given us to earn our salvation, to earn our acceptance. See, all of these terms taken together, Jesus is saying that the Sabbath is an expression of His authority. And the only way to rightly understand it and to enjoy it is to know Him. There is no way, according to the Bible, in light of Jesus' coming, to understand or enjoy the gift of God's Sabbath rest apart from Jesus. That's what this whole passage is about. All the attempts that had been made to do just that and how it made a mess of it. So therefore, the key to enjoying the Sabbath that Jesus here has come to show you is in fact a gift. He says, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The key to enjoying this gift is to remember that the basic idea of the Sabbath in the Old Testament was, was built in taking a break, taking a rest from the good things that fill our weeks. And ordinarily, I think when we think about that, what we think of is rest in, in what I, I want to call primarily all negative terms, like stopping doing something. So we stop doing work. We tend to think of rest in those terms. But there's another kind of rest that I think we often miss and in fact is at the, at the heart of what all Sabbath rest is about. It's a deeper rest and it has its roots in the creation story. When God finishes His creative work, at the end of those six days of creative activity, the Bible tells us that God rested. And we have to ask ourselves, well, what does it mean that God rested? 
I don't think what that means is that God got tired and that he needed a break. I think the answer is actually found in the repeated phrase we see in Genesis chapter 1. And it was good. And it was good. Every day of creation ends with that phrase. And then it culminates at the end of day 6 with, And God saw everything he made, and behold, it was very good. You see, when God rests, it's not because he's tired. It's because he's satisfied. In other words, there is a rest held out to you in the gospel, in the gift of the Sabbath, where you can find deep, satisfied rest from your work. How many of you have ever finished a week and you could say, I am deeply satisfied in my work? You know why? My guess is virtually every single person in this room has almost never been able to say that. I think the reason why is because work or parenting, sports, school, extracurricular activities are what we look to to justify our existence. These are the things that you and I look to to be able to say, you know, I'm not a bum. I'm okay. There's something about me that's valuable. I am a contributor. I matter. These things justify our existence. And therefore, the only way to get this deep, satisfied rest, not just a break from your work, but satisfied rest. Because, you know, you can stop working and really not stop working. (laughs) Your mind and your emotions continue to go. So how do you find, how do you get this deep, satisfied rest? The only way to get that is if Jesus becomes your security, your status, your validation. It only happens when we exchange our work, our activity, that we look to to find security, status, and validation with Jesus and His righteousness, and His work. So therefore, when you become a Christian, what happens? When you become a Christian, this is is what happens. God takes your performance record, your righteousness, which the prophet Isaiah says is no better than filthy rags. He takes your performance record, and He gives it to Jesus. And then He takes Jesus' performance record, which is perfect, to righteous fully, completely obedient to God's law. And not just in outward behavior, but from the heart. God has loved, Jesus has loved God perfectly. He's loved his neighbor perfectly. He has done for you everything that you cannot do in your own strength. And he is, God has given you that performance record. So now God accepts you not on the basis of your performance, but on the basis of Jesus. And that's a performance, that's a record, that's a righteousness that no one can take from you because it's a gift from God. It's yours. No matter how good a week at work you had, no matter how bad a week at work you had, 
It is the righteousness and the acceptance that can enable you to say no. It's the righteousness that can let you, enable you to let go of justifying yourself through your work or through your parenting or through your sports or through your extracurricular activities, whatever it is. And actually, it can actually make you happy. It can actually turn a burdened, overwhelmed life into a life of joy. Even if those circumstances never change. Because you are accepted in the Son. And I realize what what this passage says may sound impossible, (laughs) even completely out of touch with reality, and maybe even to some of us, optional. But I think what when we see what it costs Jesus to bring us this gift, we simply can't ignore it. And when we see the cost that Jesus endured to bring us this gift, we have to use it. It's that good. And so we look at the cost of the Sabbath, and there's a profound irony that helps us to see the cost that Jesus endured to bring us this gift, and that the Pharisees deny Jesus the right to do good on the Sabbath. And then they conspire to do evil against them. They're, they're flipped. They're reversed. And so again, we see a pattern we've seen before and we'll see it again. That those who deserve death in this story don't get it. The religious people. The people who try to justify themselves on their own efforts and obedience. And the one who doesn't deserve death gets it. Jesus. Again, the righteous trades places with the unrighteous. Mark tells us at the end of this story, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Right here, in no uncertain terms, is the beginning of the end for Jesus. The rest of the story, as we will see, follows that plot line that Jesus has come to take the place of sinners. Therefore, what does this tell us? That the end of the battle between religion and the gospel in your own hearts, it's only possible through resting in what Jesus accomplished on the cross. The only way that you can begin to make headway and letting go of this religious approach to God which we could say is nothing other than justifying your existence, proving that you are acceptable, to replace that with a gospel approach, that you're a sinner saved by grace, is that you begin to see the beauty of Jesus, the cost of his life, his death and resurrection. What he... See, the gospel is much more than forgiveness. It's a new status. It's being brought into a new family. It's being called a son or a daughter. It's being welcomed in and never forsaken. That the creator of the universe would smile upon you and that smile will never end. So do you see, do you see now that only through Jesus can the blessings, can you enjoy these blessings of God's Sabbath rest? And if you are beginning to see that, here's a question for you to test yourself as we, as we close. Have you ever experienced 
the deep rest that Jesus alone gives. And if not, or if you struggle to enjoy that, what would need to change in your life for you begin for you to begin to taste and experience it? And as you wrestle with that, come back to this story and ask yourself, how has Jesus, how can I, how, why, how do I need Jesus to show up in my life? How do I need to accept Him, to trust Him, to rejoice in Him? How do I need Him to make me happier so that I can rest, not just from the outward work, but in your soul? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that as we continue to worship this evening, that what Jesus is showing us here would become a reality in us. And Father in heaven, we praise you. We rejoice and give thanks that Jesus has come to free us from religion and in its place to give us the gospel of free grace, of free justification, of your affirmation and love and acceptance. And we pray, Father, that that great news would so radically change us from the inside out that we would love nothing more than to follow you, to love you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbors as ourselves. In other words, to obey you and to become more fully human, to become more like Jesus. Father, please rescue us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.